want to make a podcast, let me tell you about Spotify's program for podcasters. And it's called Spotify for Podcasters. I've been using it for over a year now. Couldn't be happier from the switch. You can record wherever you create podcasts, whether it be your phone, computer, and it's easy to upload it and distribute it to everywhere podcasts are heard. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. Best of all, Spotify for Podcasters is completely free. So launch your podcast today. Get started with Spotify for Podcasters. Go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. Monarch Legacy of Monsters, an Apple original series. The world is on fire. I decided to do something about it. On November 17th. This place, it's not ours. Believe me. The most massive event of the year arrives. If you come with me, you'll know everything, I promise. Oh my God, go, go, go! Monarch Legacy of Monsters. Streaming November 17th, only on Apple TV+. We we ended up taxiing out. Uh, we were kind of good to go uh, because we were doing an intersection takeoff and the performance allowed it. We're cracking along down the runway and about 85 knots, we, we look into our right one o'clock, three vehicles, uh, uh, no confliction. And I went, yeah, tally. Uh, we carry on, and about 95 knots, that's when they they turn right. They, they turn right across the runway. Uh, very clearly, you can see a pickup truck, a bus, and another pickup truck. And uh, I've already determined that I can't stop. And so uh, I'm now trying to work out what speed I can get to. So rotate speed is 125 knots. and uh, But 105 knots, it's really clear that if I don't do something now, we are going to hit those vehicles. We have done a pretty good job of establishing and learning you know, hey, rank doesn't belong in the debrief. It doesn't belong in the cockpit because everyone's human. Everyone makes mistakes, and you got to address that because it's life or death. Like if if the captain is making a mistake that's going to kill everyone, you want the young guy to speak up and say, hey, boss, watch out. But, sir, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Happy to have you on here. I was glad we were able to connect. This is uh, through a podcast listener that pointed me out to you and your story. So I'm excited to hear. We're going to talk about Afghanistan in one specific sortie as well as just that time period in general, as well as your Royal Air Force career. So thanks for joining me on the podcast. Well, thanks, John. It's uh, really good to be here. The The Afghanistan evacuation story is, is um, well, one of the most important stories in my career so far. And uh, and But for me, you know, as I've gone through a 20-year flying career and I've done stuff in between, the it, it felt like the pinnacle I was, because I'd, Everyone always says they're going to be a flying boss, and uh, and then so few people manage to do it because of other things. Um, you know, I had some uh, you know some people who had medical issues, some people where their aircraft's going out of service, and so therefore they can't take flying as the boss because they need to make sure that they guarantee flying for the junior guys. But we didn't have that on ninety nine squadron, and and uh, and ninety nine squadron was always busy. And you know, prior to COVID, there were plenty of retention issues you know people going off joining the airlines and things like that so right. b- bottom line there was plenty of flying for me and and to be honest i was good as i ever was um at flying the aircraft because i, I managed to get like 800 plus hours as, as the boss and and 
uh, the Afghanistan evacuation story came right at the end of my time as the boss. So no, it's uh, it's good to be here. Yeah, no, we have lots of digging. Random sidebar here because you mentioned the retention piece. So, un- not unlike the United States Air Force, we have a slight retention problem. It was really, really ramped up, like the mid two thousand fourteen, all the way up to COVID. Right then, COVID fixed retention because no airlines were hiring. But now it is reared its uh, head again, and retention is yet an issue. I actually saw my buddy pointed out yesterday. So United Airlines. If you're a military pilot, this is, I don't think ever happened in the history of airlines, but you can go ahead and apply. Even if you have more than six months remaining on your active duty tour, they'll basically give you a contingent job offer and say, Hey, we'll see you when you're done with your commitment with the military. Like that's never happened. You always have to be within a couple months of the end of your commitment. They want an availability date, but they're hurting so bad for pilots, all these airlines. So it's creating another retention issue. Is the Royal Air Force, has that come back or is it still, is it stabilized after COVID? Yeah, so COVID, I mean, I've seen this, you know, ebb and flow over the years. So on my first squadron, which was the L-1011, so it was, a, you know, TriStar squadron. And yeah. back back then, people used to come to the TriStar because it was not only a military airplane, it was being used by the civilian airlines as well. Uh, and and so you could very easily get your air transport pilot's license. Uh, I think you had to do one exam, air law, um, get the hours in, and then you could immediately go and join BA or you know um, Cathay Pacific or any of those big airlines. So there was a there was a relatively small funnel for people to get through, which was coming to the TriStar. But it meant on my first operational squadron, everyone was coming there to leave the air force. So from an inspiring perspective, it was like, uh, okay, everyone wants to leave. <laughs> <laughs> and, and to stay, I'm the, I'm the odd one out. So that was that was interesting, and 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 very quickly uh, we we ended up with a, a a retention problem within the multi-engine fleet. Then uh, then there was the financial crisis of 2008, and and of course that impacted the airlines. So we then didn't have a retention problem. Um, and then as you say, uh, as we got towards the end of the um, you know, 2018, 2019, we then did have a retention problem because the airlines were then back on their feet and then we had COVID. For the, the other thing for the Royal Air Force, which you, you don't have this for the United States Air Force, uh, we procured the Airbus A330 in, and and so loads of people have gone onto the A330. Of course, there's easy read across there to the A320, A330, A350, even the A380. So that has... Um, uh, you know that has caused uh, retention problems uh, because ultimately, if you're working really, really hard within the air force and you're going to work less hard for more money in in the civilian world, that's that's going to be a problem. And you know, and it will continue to be um, a problem. And you know, there are lots of ways we can get around that. The military job, as you know, is completely different to the civilian airlines. Um, you know, the Afghan evacuation story is just but one case. You know, I've flown around various different places in Africa, um, into Iraq, uh, various different places in Afghanistan and around the world. And you just don't do the same job as the civilian airline. But if you, you know, if it's so hard in the military and, uh, and, and you're not enjoying it, then, then you will look for another way to, to get that quality of life. Um, post during COVID as, as the boss, I had loads of people who were lifelong friends who were going, this is not working out for me. Uh, or I've lost my job. Is there any chance I can come back to the squadron? And that was a, a pretty blessed position to be in, where you can help out friends, you know, who literally didn't have any way to pay their mortgage in a couple of months' time. 
and uh, you know because they were on the waiting yeah. list for for various airlines. So we we took about six to seven people back on ninety nine squadron, and and that was great because you're bringing in experience, you're bringing in people who are really capable, and uh, and there was still a job to be done. So that was useful. Uh, I think we are now out the end of it, and what you are seeing within the US uh, and the retention issue within the USAF is is probably going to be the same for the Air Force. So it's like I say, it's it's cyclical and uh, and it follows the, those big things, and you just just need to make sure you know the military offer is 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 going to compete with other things. Yeah, and obviously you can't compete with the money aspect, as you alluded to. The military will never be able to do that. I know for our Air Force, the quality of life piece, that's something that it needs to figure out, in my humble opinion. They have made strides with certain things that have made it better, but then there's still a lot. There's a lot of road to cover to fix that. But, again, I think you mentioned uh, in your synopsis you sent over to me, and I think it's a great point with you flying the A330 over the Indian Ocean. So you joined the military, right, for a purpose and a mission and, and to serve your your nation, make things better. I think that's what most people probably should do it. But nowhere else will a 24-year-old, a 25-year-old, a 30-year-old have the responsibility of this multi-million dollar aircraft going into some of these crazy places. Maybe it's dropping off, doing airdrop, it's doing humanitarian aid, it's dropping bombs, whatever it might be. You're just not going to find that. You're not going to get that in the airlines, which I think you alluded to very well in the in the email you sent over to me. Yeah. Um I mean there's there's so many different stories. So, you know, um uh, one of the stories is I just remember 2005, uh, September 2005. Now this, this that was a pretty bad year. So, it was the 2nd of September 2005 uh, and I had a good friend who was flying on a Nimrod. Now this was this was the Nimrod which um uh, basically uh, it, all of the report is out there now. And and it led to the Haddon Cave inquiry. So this was the Nimrod that essentially was air to air refueled and and then uh, basically blew up over Afghanistan because uh, it caught fire, exploded about three thousand feet above the ground, and you know fourteen people died, including a mate that I went through fire training with. Um, within a couple of days, I was back flying over Afghanistan and uh, refueling F-18s because I was on the tanker and and it was the tanker that refueled the Nimrod and it, that was quite a, a strange place to be and we, we were up, uh, we, we'd done our frag for the evening so we refueled um, uh, uh, all of our people and we sat there we weren't allowed to be let off station so we couldn't go home until we were bingo fuel uh, i.e. minimum fuel to go back to our base in Muscat and then there was a, there was a May Day and and we are we are there going okay that's interesting don't hear maydays all the time and 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 we're just sat there listening away and it was basically a pair of f-18s and one of the f-18s had lost half his hydraulics and uh, and he was considering and it was one of the ones from the carrier he he was considering diverting to kandahar but they were fairly sure that if he diverted to kandahar then they'd never get that f-18 out of there because they didn't have the maintenance and they didn't have um, the the other aspects you can't take it apart and you're not going to fly back to the carrier so they were um they were they're pretty worried about that and so what they wanted to do was refuel it and have someone refuel it all the way down the boulevard the pakistan um corridor so anyway, KC 135 um, shouts up and say, "Hey, I've got I've got a bit of bit of gas," and it had about five thousand pounds um, 
spare gas and and it was actually the tanker above us so we were at twenty six thousand feet um and it was at twenty seven thousand feet and they needed to get down anyway lo and behold our our uh, we had our hoses out and this um these f-18s came up and thought they were formating on the kc-135 but they actually they were formating on us and and the one with the hydraulics problem had plugged into us and uh and so our <laughs> amber light had turned into a green light and he was taking fuel from us and so we just let them know and let uh the the uh tech air traffic know that he's actually plugged into us and uh and it was like uh okay that's fine can you take him down the boulevard and it was like um yeah i think i think we can and and by this point the kc 135 had five thousand pounds of fuel um we had 30 tons of fuel so we had sixty-six thousand pounds of spare fuel and it was like yeah we, we got loads of gas um we're, we're happy to do this so we uh we picked up him picked up his mate now we only have one hose uh we've got two hoses but you the l1011 you can only refuel um one hose at a time so single point refueler and and uh and so they were they were kind of yo-yoing backwards and forwards and we made to go down to the and then his mate comes up and goes, is there any chance, just in case he loses any more hydraulics, that we can get the gear down and get the flaps down? And it was like, uh, okay, how slow do you need to go? And it was it was actually below our minimum refueling speed, but it was, you know, we understood the operational requirement and uh, and went, yeah, okay. So we we put our slap cell and uh, and got our first kind of stage of flap out and, uh, and, and cracked on down the boulevard. And uh, and this guy was plugging in, and he was he was you could tell he was nervous on the radio, and uh, and it was like oh, uh, and then he was plugging in, but because he'd put all of his wheels down and all of his um, flaps down, he now had loads of drag and didn't actually have that much power because uh, he was so slow, and so we now had to toboggan, and uh, and so we weren't in the boulevard, and we came down to around about fifteen thousand feet and then it was fourteen thousand feet over Pakistan and uh and so we were letting Karachi know and then we kind of took on the Mayday call sign. And it got all got really interesting. And and then in the end, uh, he <laughs> he got loads of fuel, um or we got fuel. We took them all the way back to around about sort of fifty miles away from the carrier. They managed to uh land safely on the carrier and this F eighteen had got back and that was so rewarding. And we went back and had a couple of beers in Muscat and you know, we were kind of high-fiving, going, this is amazing. Now, you just can't do that in the airlines. And that was one of my, that was just one of my stories when I go, you know, I, I recognize why loads of people are leaving, quality of life, money, uh, and things like that. But, uh, uh, yeah, but for me, having, having uh, situations like that, and the low of what had happened on the 2nd of September, where I'd lost a mate, and uh, and, you know, he died in the most horrific way, and then a couple of days later, you'd had a material impact on someone else's circumstance, and you go, okay, okay, this this is there's something in this. And by then, I'd only been operational for a couple of years, but it it, it kind of solidified my uh, rationale for being in the military. Yeah, highs and lows, right place, right time. It can go wrong place, wrong time. All that all that applies. What was a little bit of the back? Can you give me a little bit of background of the Nimrod mishap? Because I'm not too familiar with that i knew it happened but that, that's about the extent yeah of it. so th th there's been a full inquiry in the uk on this so the the nimrod was was being refueled and uh, and essentially the nimrod is is an old aircraft and i, I think it's uh, i'm not a nimrod guy but i think it had about um uh, 14 fuel tanks seven on one side seven on the other when it when it gets refueled 
the um, as some fuel is transitioning from one fuel tank to another, you might end up with a bit of an overpressure in one of the fuel tanks. And when it overpressures, clearly um, there's a there's a drain valve, so some of the fuel can come out. So some of this fuel was leaving the kind of the overpressure valve, and it was streamlining down the fuselage, and and then it was being sucked into the bomb bay. So the Nimrod used to be able to carry torpedoes and, and things like that. So it's been sucked into the the bomb bay of the uh, of the of the Nimrod. Uh, inside the bomb bay, there was a fire detection system, but not a fire suppression. system. And and inside the uh, the Nimrod was was also the I think it's the environmental control system which some parts got hot so you've now got fuel being sucked in you've got a hot part of you know the environmental control system and it was it was catching fire so every once in a while I think they get a an intermittent fuel detection uh, and and they and and it was it was kind of being accepted because they couldn't fire any find any signs of fire or fire damage and and risk was being taken risk was being taken because of the operational imperative the nimrod was being used for a very important intelligence surveillance reconnaissance job so risk was being taken on this on this fateful day the the aircraft started at twenty nine thousand feet it was one of my good friends who was uh or two of my good friends that were re- refueling they were doing the last sortie of their tristar detachment uh, in the morning, then they were going to come back and uh, hand the aircraft over for us, and we were going to do the first um, sortie of our detachment. That's the way it was going to work. But they didn't come home, and uh, as it, as in the TriStar didn't come home on time, and then an operation, um, uh, an operation to kind of close down all the communications was called, and and something something was going on, and essentially the 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 Nimrod had this fire detection system, the fire detection. Uh, had detected a fire the fire didn't go out and so they called a mayday uh there was a, a harrier one of our uk harriers on side and went and formated but the the nimrod started a, an emergency descent to get into kandahar the fire took hold uh and and spread throughout the aircraft and and ultimately uh the aircraft um didn't reach the ground it wasn't able to get into kandahar so it was an awful awful situation and 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 so then the investigation looked into the causes of why risk was being taken and, and you know who should hold the risk and being legally accountable and things like that but um you know all of those names are on on the hall of um all the fame of of heroes within one of our headquarters and you know those guys were doing a brilliant job and it's just it's just really really sad but that that specific incident led to uh, the cancellation of a couple of programs and and a whole new look at the way we manage risk within the Royal Air Force, and uh, yeah, um, but yeah, fourteen people died on that day, second second of September two thousand and uh, two thousand six uh, was the year, and uh, yeah, jeez. With managing risk, how how did it change? Did it elevate the decision matrix, or is it? what changed what changed so the so there's so there's a very clear delineation now between operational risk things that you need to do kind of in the spur of the moment and then there and then operating risk you know um acceptable levels of risk that you can take and uh the operating risk you go through you go through a very systematic approach to Mid-air collision would be a good one. So we call that loss of safe separation. But if you are flying in places where there isn't an air traffic control or it's really, really busy, 
um, you know, then then loss of safe separation is one of the biggest risks that can cause, uh, you know, loss of an aircraft. And and so only only certain people now at the uh, 06 level, then at the two star level, and then ultimately our chief of the air star, only those people can take risk and hold that risk. And and they are then legally accountable for the risks that they take. Whereas previously it was it was risk was being taken at every single level. And there was a blurring between operational risk. Okay, we really need to do this because this mission is really important. And then some people would say, okay, uh, I'm not sure that we should be taking this risk day after day after day. And then it was being elevated to the next level, say the major level. And then it would be elevated to um, the the 05 level, then the 06 level. And lots of people are taking risk. And then then there was there was the almost the accusation that those people were then not accountable. Once they left the job, they weren't accountable. Whereas now the main thing is those people who take risk are legally accountable for the risk they've taken throughout the rest of their life. So they are personally accountable, uh, which makes you think about things, right? So if I go into a job, you know, as, a, as an 06, my next job might be Commander Air Wing, Bryson Autumn, and uh, and I might be take, taking some risks on loss of safe separation. Why did, you know, a capability program, or why was that aircraft flying in that position uh, in, in the sky at a certain time, and then it hits a glider, or it hits a powered aircraft, and you just go, okay, well, to the best of my knowledge, I was taking risk which was acceptable, you know, as low as reasonably practicable is what we call it, and and it's a tolerable risk, but if someone dies, they're going to make sure that you've made the right decisions based on the right evidence and things like that. You know, even in 10 years' time, if I've made a decision, it will track back to me rather than, you know, just the next person. So Interesting. Yeah. Personally accountable. Yeah, because, you know, for, for our military, you know, commanders are moving every two years. People are moving every, you know, one to three years. And so you can inherit or inherit, you know, a program that has risk or is a bad deal. I mean, it can go both ways, right? But like ultimately, if you're the guy who's holding the baton at that point, like you might have been day two or day, you know, month two into the job, like you're going to be the one who gets crushed. And, you know, the previous commanders, for the most part, like it's not going to touch them or scathe them like they're on to the next next job. So that's interesting um, to be able to kind of go back in time and I think also force you to think. I can see maybe one fault with that. I'm curious to get your opinion. Do you think that we call it, you know, CYA cover your ass. Like, is it, are you, is it, is it are you less risk averse and willing to take a risk thinking that, Hey, you know, it's just easier to play it safe all the time than to do it. Cause inherently the military, you're taking risk. I mean, you're breaking things and, and doing dangerous things. Yeah. So I've got two perspectives and, and they are definitely Kev perspectives. So post Haddon cave, we, we built up a, a safety empire. Appropriately so, because what happened on the Nimrod can never really happen again. Because, um, because you know, people taking risks, not being accountable for those risks, uh, and and then as risk came up, you know, there wasn't the evidence base to be able to, you know, fully understand what the other guy had signed off, and you know, and and the operational imperative was the overriding factor that meant the aircraft took off, and and even some people who were flying felt uncomfortable. So the you know you, you can't allow that ha- to happen again. However, you know as you say we're in the military and uh, and and 
in the military, you need to go against adversaries and you need to be able to, you know, be um, stand tall and make sure you're counted and, and have a decisive impact on the battlefield. That is your role in that military domain. And, uh, and at the moment, and, and, you know, what we did is we, we built this empire out of safety, uh, rightly so, to make sure things were safety. But because we're always resource limited, anyone who was spare, you know, who was focused on the thinking about how we do military operations kind of went into the safety kind of, um, you know, domain. And, and, and so therefore, you, you know, we can go and deliver, you know, basic operations and, you know, Guess what? Daesh, really exciting to go to the, you know, a, go and do the counter Daesh campaign, but they weren't a state actor. And, uh, and you know, in the end, it was pretty, pretty straightforward to roll them back. And then in the end, it turned into a, you know, a counter terrorism thing, which we're all comfortable because of Afghanistan. But people weren't thinking about state on state. Um, people were more than happy to think about, about safety. Now, I'm over, overemphasizing for effect, but. If you need to make sure that you're as safe as possible, then you, that, and then there is the accusation that you've become risk averse. And I do want people thinking about how we're going to be potential adversaries. That is that is also one of the rules of the military. So there's, you know, that was one of the things I observed. You know, people not thinking about how we're going to win against an adversary, but going into the safety domain. So, um, so there was that. However, what I would say is back to the Afghan Afghanistan evacuation. When real military operations kind of kick off, you do end up end up in the right place. So if I go back to the operating risk, we, you know, on the C-17 in the UK, you can only fly 138 people because of the number of seats. Now, that is that is tolerable and, uh, and the risk is managed appropriately because you've only got, you know, 138 seats. And so, you know, if people can't sit down, it's not safe. When you come to an evacuation situation, the the USAF rules are you can put 350 people on the floor, you know, strap them to the floor, and it'll be fine. That's an emergency situation, but we didn't have those rules within the Royal Air Force because we never really had to use them. And very quickly, almost within uh, almost within hours, so I was uh, I was actually on leave. I got asked for a view on um, you know how many people can we take and I went guys I've already fed this information in we should follow the USAP laws and the answer is 350 based on this evidence once I'd provided the evidence and it was accepted by the two star that became operating risk okay there's a, a valid justification and so there was the as you say the cover your ass element um, the Americans are doing this so this is probably fine and that became operating risk now when we actually got into theatre and we started doing the evacuation we went above 350 so there was no evidence for that but I had my pilot saying look we've got 350 on board but because there's so many babies and children we've got loads of space and the only thing I cared about um, that you know the three risks were uh, if you had a ground evacuation can you get everybody out the door because that's important because you know if you can't then there, there's plenty of scenarios both in the civilian world and also in the military world where if you don't get people out of the aircraft in a ground evacuation then people might die smoke inhalation things like that so that's can you get them out the door the next risk was was actually hypoxia so if you have um, a loss of pressurization and you're up at twenty five thousand feet you you've you've got no oxygen masks because the aeroplane is not designed for that. So that's a big risk. What are you going to do? And guess what? You're, you're going to get down, but you might not be able to get down because you might be over mountains. So that was a risk to consider. 
And then the final one was performance. Afghanistan, mountains, um, you know. And so, so because we were able to consider those risks in slow time and then pass it up to the two-star level, he was then happy to accept those risks. So that's operating risk. Uh, when we got on the ground, um, uh, when we got on the ground, it was like, guys, we've got loads of space here and we've got loads of people who need to get out of Afghanistan. Can we go above 350? And that became operational risk. So the operational commander uh, um, just... Um, when, okay, I trust you guys, mission command, uh, do what you think is right. It still came down to, can you fit them in safely? And do you have the performance to take off? And if you could do those two things, then you're clear to go. So we, um, you know, I flew one sortie, which had 433 people on passengers, so 445. And at the time, you know, for about four days, that was the record. And then one of my mates, um, uh, because because I'd done that, um, you know, they were desperate to beat me. Now, I didn't do that because it was like, a, hey, look at me. I did that to highlight right. that, you know, we need to be operationally focused. And the guys uh, took that and, and went, okay, that's fine. 350 is not the limit. We can go above 400. Um, and and we ended up, I think, the, the, the UK record now for number of people on an air mobility aircraft is 448. Um, could we have done more? Yeah, probably. But actually, the limiting factor in Afghanistan at the time was was actually the ability to process the passengers. So we'd we'd managed to get into a good rhythm of you know getting the right number of passengers in the right time frame. But that's hopefully that's highlighted a good example between that operating that considered risk management versus the we'll do what we need to on the ground. Monarch Legacy of Monsters, an Apple original series. The world is on fire. I decided to do something about it. On November 17th. This place, it's not ours. Believe me. The most massive event of the year arrives. If you come with me, you'll know everything, I promise. Oh my God, go, go, go! Monarch Legacy of Monsters, streaming November 17th, only on Apple TV+. This episode is brought to you by Undeniably Dairy. Dairy farmers are more than farmers. They're climate caretakers. They see water as a precious resource. Most farmers recycle water up to four times, from chilling the milk to irrigating the crops. And some even use technology to turn manure into renewable energy. To learn more about what dairy farmers are doing to make their farms more sustainable, visit usdairy.com. Yeah, that's great because that is that's when you hear that in safety, like you obviously need to be safe. We've learned a lot of lessons in blood. You don't want to forget those lessons. You don't make smart decisions, but yeah. inherently, the military is taking risk. And as you alluded to, you know, I think we all for the last twenty years have been operating in uncontested environments, and now have forgotten that you know we need to be ready to go out there and fight a peer adversary which undoubtedly there's going to be an acceptable level of risk, which will probably be a defined number of people in planes you're willing to lose based upon each mission. And that's something that we just haven't done in quite a while. And hopefully we don't have to do. Um, I, I did want to pivot because you mentioned the processing of people. And I think we'll jump into Afghanistan. So we're kind of going backwards here, but I think this is great. Uh, all the passages you're bringing out, you guys were still bringing them out to Al-Udid as well. I've had a couple other podcasts with the C-17 crews talking about just the conditions on the ground and how long it took to process. Were you still experience, were you experiencing the same things as far as where you're moving passengers to? Or were you taking them to a different spot? Yeah, we were actually taking them to a different spot. So we were, we were going to uh, another airport in UAE. So we we're operating out of uh, 
um, uh, a base which was about um, ten miles, ten miles to the to the west of Dubai, and then there was another base in Dubai. So we weren't using Dubai International, but we were operating in two air bases there. Um, uh, one of them was an international terminal that we gained a, a little bit of capacity from. And we would go there, offload all of our passengers, and then they would get onto one of our Airbus A330 voyages and then fly over to the UK. Uh, Ali Udeed was was toppers. It was, um, you know, I've uh, we've got our exchange exchange pilot, so he's actually just flown home, but he was contributing to some of those missions. And, you know, they were... So that their limiting factor was in Al Udeed able to process the passengers. So they ended up with a load of tankers over the top of Al Udeed and, uh, and then people were tanking them because they weren't landing in Al Udeed that then flew back to Ramstein. And I understand that because of, you know, I don't want to be coarse here, but because of the amount of feces and urine that had uh, gone through the floor, it destroyed all the wiring because it turns out that that urine is uh, is is pretty um pretty toxic and corrosive right and uh, and so I, I don't know where they got to but i, I was told that you know, up to 10 of those aircraft were, were completely screwed <laughs> and, oh, yeah well i saw some of the pictures of some of the usc 17s of the bathroom yeah. which i mean i don't even know how you get back to yeah normal after so, that. so our our loggies um our j4 community and logisticians did a did a great job of um, you know, the movers on the ground, processing the passengers in Kabul, um, you know, the guys that we were liaising with out of uh, our, our base um, that we're operating from, and then, um, you know, in into uh, Dubai world, and then all the way back to Bryce Norton when they, you know, offloaded the passengers, you know, they, you know, it's a bit, it goes all the way back to Napoleon, right? If you, if you don't get the logistics sorted, everything else fails. And, right. and and they they were epic. So we we didn't have that many issues like that. Uh, they were that you know, uh, and you know um, that they were appropriately, um, you know, glorified. Right. Yeah. I know. Fair. Fair enough. And I think obviously evident. Uh, we see how important logistics. Uh, I think the Russian military can talk talk to that uh, most recently. So logistics, they make it all happen. Yeah. Um. I want to pivot because I, I have talked about that, but. I have a little synopsis here, but Wing Commander Kevin Thomas Latchman, RAF, was awarded the Air Force Cross after demonstrating exceptional leadership and gallantry in the face of imminent danger during Operation Pitting, following a suicide bomb explosion at the Kabul airport. You commenced the takeoff. There was a convoy of three vehicles that I'm envisioning were running parallel on a parallel taxiway. Yep. And then at some point, did a hard 90 left or 90 right, ran perpendicular to your aircraft, but you ended up missing this convoy by 10 feet, which, you know, obviously would have been calamity and killed the, everyone in the convoy and most likely you and everyone on the C-17 or just been horrific. I want to talk about this specific mission, but you were awarded the Air Force Cross. And if I understand correctly, Prince William awarded you the Air Force Cross. So I want to talk about that first, because I know once we start talking about the mission, I'm not going to ask anything about Prince William, but uh, that'd be a pretty cool moment, I would imagine. Yeah, it no, it really was. So I mean, it's just a, it, it was just a year ago. So uh, that I that I went to Buckingham Palace and and was awarded that. And you know, it's it's, it's pretty special going to the palace. I'd I'd never been to the palace for for any other reason apart from like every other tourist standing outside the gates, taking <laughs> some pictures. Um, what was also quite special, I'd I'd. It was a year on from me completing my tour. So I handed over the squadron on the 1st of October 
2021. Uh, and this was now kind of 13th of October, 2022. And, and it was my, uh, I'd, I'd done six months out in the States at your Air Force Base and we'd had a great holiday in Disney and, you know, and I, you know, lots of things had happened since then. And then all of a sudden I was kind of right back in the room and, uh, and, and doing interviews about, about this, this, this incident. My daughter's birthday uh, was around that time as well. So I got her, got, she was there and normally they only allow you a couple of tickets because it was post COVID. Uh, but one of the stories was, you know, we went to London for my daughter's birthday and, uh, and all of us got to go in and, and see Buckingham Palace. That was cool. My wife and three kids. So all of it was, it was quite a magical, magical situation. Yeah. And then Prince William, I was the last person to, to get my, um, uh, to get my award and he was, he, he's gone through the pilot training system. You know, he, he has been, or, you know, uh, remains a, a Royal Air Force helicopter pilot. He's done search and rescue. And so he, he knows the system. And so we, we chatted for, uh, for a couple of minutes and, and he said, you know, so was it just blind panic? And I went, well, actually, and, and so I, I went through the scenario and he, he was great and pinned my medal on. Um, slight awkward moment as I, as I come to leave because, because I was the last person, what they do. And he's standing there, I, I assume for quite a long time, maybe an hour and a half, two hours beforehand. And as soon as I come to leave, they start playing the national anthem. So I, I turn around, stand to attention. Um, and, uh, and then, and then he marches out and then he gives me, gives me a wink and then, and then he disappears off. And it was, you know, it was, it was cool. It was all really cool. Got some great pictures. Yeah, it's kind of cool. It's interesting. I guess that, that was the piece I wanted to ask about too is, so he did combat or he did search and rescue flying helos. He no longer does that, right? He's now just doing Prince duties or Royal family duties. Yeah. That's how he, it works. He, so so he, he, he's got lots of roles as you might expect, you know, um, uh, you know, he's, he is the Prince of Wales and he's, uh, and you know, you see Princess Catherine also, you know, doing all of their, 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 their full-time roles. And, uh, and, you know, he is now, you know, the next in line for, uh, for the throne and, uh, and you know, there's there's been lots of activity. Obviously, um, Her Majesty the Queen passed away, uh, you know, just over a year ago. So that that actually happened about a month before I then went to the palace. And so we didn't know whether I was going to go to the palace on time because they were in grieving for two weeks, and it was going to change. It might have changed everything. Um, was I going to be awarded my uh, my gallantry medal by the new king? Uh, you know, that was a that was a conversation, right. but uh, but. No, it was just it. It uh, a lot's happened, so I'm fairly sure that he is just doing full time, uh, you know, royal family stuff. We threw a bunch of tea in a harbor a long time ago, and I lost track. But it's interesting to hear about uh, how how it all works, and it's cool that I think uh, his military service um, for stepping into the royal duties there. So, pivoting to the sortie that we're talking about here, can you break down uh, your lead up to? operation pitting how you've kind of flowed into this process and then how you found yourself on the runway that night and what transpired yeah so the lead up to it uh before i went on leave uh we had an issue um a really unfortunate issue at rf bryson Orton, which was um the runway was melting and that's not great and uh and so we yeah. um and we we were given the tipper that things were not going exactly as per plan in in Afghanistan and uh, with the runway melting uh, you know my, my first issue was was they'd said okay the a400m can operate and the hurt can operate but 
Voyager and C-17 are, uh, you know, uh, uh, pretty much grounded because there wasn't enough space. And I went, whoa, whoa, whoa. I went, I went C-17, I only need this much stuff and let's let's pull this circle around. And as long as I've got basically four and a half thousand feet, which I did have, then I can I can operate this far. Or we can bounce out to one of the other airports and still get the task done. Um, because how And sorry, how many C-17s do you, does the Royal Air Force have? So 90, 99 Squadron has has eight c seventeens and we've only got one okay. squadron and, and so okay. that is that is our c seventeen squadron now we uh, we have a training okay. squadron which is twenty four squadron who who train our pilots now before they come to the front line squadron but essentially ninety nine squadron and the air force have have eight aircraft so so that was okay. it that that was going on uh, and so we we managed to maintain operations uh, just before I went on leave and that was uh, that was kind of uh, just before August, and then for the first two weeks of August, I was on leave, and uh, and I was I was in the UK, but all of this was kind of building up, and then we were working out how many people we could get, and we were told it was going to be maybe, you know, um, you know, two days of about three flights per day, and that was going to be the ask, uh, just to get the you know those people who were associated with the UK out and you go okay and and have you done the numbers okay yeah it's yeah probably about a thousand to 1500 people is what our current estimates are and I went okay now one of my one of my squadron leaders flight commanders was kind of leading all the preparation up to that uh but you could see that this was snowballing and it was building up into into something which is bigger than Ben Hur. uh and then whilst I was on Lee uh, it was like okay and we sent some people forward uh uh, initially, initially we sent our 16 air assault brigade out to theatre. So they are they are a you know combat battalion, uh, airborne combat battalion, and and they went in there. And we had an issue where one crew that they, they'd got into ground, but they got onto the ground, and and uh, but the aircraft with the ammunition hadn't managed to get in. So I I got a phone call from from one of my crews and it was like a, yeah they want us to take off but we've got we've we've had a, a number of beers now and they want us to take off and I was like okay let 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 let's let let's manage this and I went well, we went back to the authorities and said we can't take an aircraft off now but actually we can do this and we can crew rest in this other place and we can get it there and it'll be three hours later is that fine it's like yes fine so no reputational damage there due to people having to right. fly after beers. Uh, but but right. but the operational imperative, uh, you could see that it was building and that something was really going down. If you end up with a, you know, a brigade combat team in theatre uh, and they they are now fully armed, the we had our one star, uh, extremely high readiness headquarters deployed to Kabul as well, and those guys were tooling up and arming up, and they were short of ammunition, and they thought it was, uh, you know. It was only due to Taliban choice that they didn't overrun the airport, and I think that's important. You know, we were allowed to leave, and uh, and then by the time it got to the end of August, you know, it was like, okay, you, you, you've had your time, and so that was a that was an important factor. But you didn't know that was going to be the case, um, you know, kind of two three weeks beforehand. It was, you know, the Taliban were kind of overrunning the country, and 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 so that is going to cause concern for not only the people on the ground but the people who. You know, are affiliated to the people on the ground. Uh, so, so that's that's kind of the build-up. Uh, in the end, we had to send some some aircraft forward. So we sent the aircraft forward. We ended up with initially two, then three, then four aircraft, and and the crews were going forward, and and very quickly they started blowing some people out. You know, first a couple of hundred. Um, I 
I discussed before, you know, I'd written a note to the uh, the two star to get approval for up to three hundred and fifty people, and so that was kind of approved. So that that wasn't that wasn't a thing. People were jumping on the floor. They were just putting the straps across their laps, and and uh, and I think the the first lift out was about two hundred and fifty. Then it went up to three hundred, and very quickly up. So so it was kind of working, and then we end up with the situation where the the Afghan air traffic control kind of fell. And you end up with, you know, another one of your podcasts, I think, where that aircraft took off with 800 people on board with people falling off and uh, and the aircraft, you know, the airfield got overrun. That obviously paused operations until we were able to, you know, control the airfield. Uh, after that, operations resumed. Now, I, I got there after operations resumed and things were a little bit more stable. Um, you know, got there on the Monday my first mission in was on the Wednesday. It was a daylight flight. But when I arrived, I, I then had pretty much six aircraft either there or operating to Kabul or back to the UK, and it was now fully up to speed. There were still some things to iron out in terms of, you know, we had three aircraft landing in Kabul, you know, one one after the other with only an hour in between. So there wasn't the ability to process the passengers. So I had some crews frustrated because they were taking off with only vehicles on board and not people, and they're there to evacuate right. refugees. So, so some things to iron out. But I, I took off with 433 on my first trip and went, "Hey, I'm now part of the club. Happy days!" And, uh, and it got <laughs> relatively straightforward. And so I, I, I was going, "Okay, we'll just do a couple of more trips like this and and crack on." One of the one of the limiting factors that we had was night vision goggle qualified crews. So one of the reasons okay. I'd gone out was because I was night vision goggle qualified. You'll you'll appreciate that it's in the middle of summer. So in the middle of summer in the northern hemisphere, there's not that much nighttime in the UK. So it's quite difficult to right. maintain currency. And you'll also appreciate that it was in August and lots of people are on holiday, on their family holidays. And so ripping people out of their their their, their summer family holidays is going to have retention issues. So it kind of links back to the airline stuff. You don't want to completely right. screw people over. Um, so it was... And, and also, we had one person there who'd already done eight missions in. You know, this guy, uh, and he got he got no national recognition. And, and this is kind of... Not not a sore point, but it makes you slightly embarrassed because you end up in a situation which you can't avoid. But this guy did eight missions, um, and with his crew did eight missions and flew about two and a half thousand people out by you know with him and his crew. That's that's a significant effort. Um, that's huge. Th- those guys were tired and they were not getting very much sleep, so it was appropriate to rotate. So those those were the three factors: not enough MVG crews, people were on leave, and uh, and you you've got some people who were really tired. They'd been They've been there since the start. So rotating the crews, and, uh, and so clearly I, w- I was good to go. Um, uh, I kind of fulfilled all those criteria. There was already a detachment commander there, so I didn't need to fulfill the leadership role, and I was just there to to go and help out. So done the first mission. Um, second mission, we get the intelligence briefing, and we're told that there's there's significant that there may be a significant event that goes on, and they're trying to mitigate it. But ultimately, uh, as we're flying into Afghanistan, and we cross from Pakistan into Afghanistan. Uh, we, we're told to hold, which was um, rubbish direction because we're not going to hold in the middle of nowhere. Uh, but we get told to hold because a bomb's gone off at the Abbey Gate. And uh, it's like, okay. So we, we go down to long range crews and, uh, and continue making our way to Kabul because we're either going to go one way, we're either going to go back or go forward, but we're not going to sit in the middle of nowhere. 
So we we crack on forward and and uh, we hold for another sort of you know only fifteen twenty minutes and then in the end we're cleared to make an approach and, and landing call. Are you a passionate aviation enthusiast? And you'll be thrilled to hear about our sponsor, Aircore Aviation. This exciting company has been revolutionizing the aviation industry since 2008, and they have some amazing career opportunities available. More about that in just a minute. Aircore Aviation is at the forefront of airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating all the way back to World War II. Their dedicated team is involved in various aspects of aerospace, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support using state-of-the-art technology. Their exceptional expertise in core manufacturing capabilities like metal forming, CNC machining, and complete aircraft rebuilding has led to the restoration of some award-winning aircraft, such as a couple P-51s, such as P-51 Thunderbird, Twilight Tier, and Sierra Su-2. And if you've been following me for a while, you might remember I was fortunate enough to fly over the Super Bowl in 2018 in Minneapolis. The formation was led by Sierra Su-2 alongside two A-10s and myself in the F-16, so this is a very cool full-circle experience. These incredible achievements have captured the attention of aircraft owners, aviation enthusiasts, and the general public alike. If you've always dreamt of a career in aviation, then Aircore Aviation is the perfect place for you. They are rapidly expanding their team in 2024 and have job openings in departments such as engineering and CAD, quality assurance, fabrication, and restoration. This is your chance to turn a passion into profession. Aircore Aviation is offering some amazing benefits for full-time positions, including health insurance, PTO, HSA, retirement plans, life insurance, and the extra perk of enjoying Fridays off. If you're ready to be part of a team dedicated to fulfilling the dreams to the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoreaviation.com backslash careers today and take the first step towards an exciting career in aviation. Again, that's aircoreaviation.com backslash careers. Don't miss out on this incredible opportunity. When we, when we land in Kabul, it is absolute chaos. Uh, it's it's chaos uh, on on the approach in because people are trying to take off uh, uh, very quickly, and they're not, they're trying to take off without clearance. It's chaos on the way in, so we we kind of have to um, sort ourselves out as as aircrew holding and when well we're we're kind of good to go and our passengers are ready, so we'll 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 head down. And when we land, uh, turn off the runway, and and the the ground force are driving Humvees round, and and I was doing like say twenty thirty knots taxiing to the pan. And I've got a Humvee driving at 40, 50 miles an hour underneath the wing. And you go, this is not right. And, it's, and so I just slammed on the brakes and went, right. And I let air traffic know. And I went, if, you, if you're in comms with these guys, they need to stop driving underneath the wing. Because one of them must have been so close to the engine, you know, and, you know, anhedral wing on the C-17, the left hand, uh, yeah. the left hand engine. Uh, and you just go, I'm fairly sure he's going to get quite close to that. So we went in and and we were told, that we're not 100 percent sure he's running around the airfield right now, so um, keep all the doors closed and turn all your lights off. And uh, and and again, that's unusual. You don't normally get that in the in the civil world. So non-standard. So that was it. Um, now, so the situation then goes right. We're we're parked up on the pan. Uh, we've got the engines running, so it's all engines running offload and uh, and you know uh, oh, sorry, engines running on load for the passengers. Because uh, there's no fuel there, and 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 you're burning quite a lot of fuel. So you're burning about four thousand pounds per hour when you're doing, um, uh, and you know, with the engines running on the ground. So you haven't got an, you know, an endless bucket of fuel. 
How much fuel does a C-17 carry? I should. I, I have not asked anyone that yeah, yet. Yeah, so, so it can carry 245,000 pounds. Uh, we were but we were flying anywhere between sort of uh, 150 to 160,000 pounds probably for a mission like that. Um, okay, that's there and back probably with like 30 minutes of holding. Yeah, there and back with normal divert fuel and, um, and, and you know, engines running fuel and a little, little bit for mum so that you can, you know, keep the engines running and should there be any eventualities on the ground. But, but Kabul, you know, 6,000 feet high and you've got 17,000 foot mountains around you. So you are performance limited. So you, you can't go in there with, say, 200,000 pounds or anything like that. And some of the US tankers, I think, were taken off with shed loads of people, but they had tankers in the overhead. So they were able to... Now, we can't do that from, from an Air Force perspective. We're at Royal Air Force. We don't have the ability to do air-to-air -air refueling. So, so gotcha. what you've got is what you've got. So so fuel... The one you're with. Uh, we, we parked up for about half an hour and, and we're burning this fuel and going, well, we've got a... Um, a DP here, so decision point on when we go. Okay, that's fine. No passengers. We'll we'll head back. Uh, but what wasn't an option was turning off the engines and shutting down, and then waiting for uh, waiting for you know the passengers to be clear to walk out to the aircraft. So after thirty minutes, we get told right, we've got uh, three hundred sixty-five passengers for you. Okay, great. That's a that's a that's a pretty much a full load, and uh, and they're clear to walk across the pan, and and, and we start loading them up. That's about a half an hour process. And in that process, all of the lights go out in the airfield. Like all of them. And we're speaking to air traffic and uh, and and it, the guys from 82nd Airborne are brilliant. They go, hey, we we got no idea why the lights have gone out. And uh, and he said, it might be, it might be that they've, they've blown up the generator or it might be that the generator's run out of fuel. We don't know, but we're not going to be able to find out anytime soon. <laughs> and it was like, okay, that's a great. bit of a predicament. <laughs> So we, <laughs> Great. we we've now got the engines running and an aircraft full of fuel and a decision to make: Are we going to go, or are we going to stay? And you know, in it really wasn't an option to offload the passengers, go take them back to the compound. I, I mean, a lot of those guys they were they were so distressed. Only a couple of hours before, a bomb has gone off, and uh, and a number of their loved ones have died. We had uh, a couple of people who walked on board the aircraft, and as soon as they crossed the threshold for the aircraft, they they passed out um, because it was almost like, like um, that's it. I've I've got to the end of my tolerable fatigue, or you know, um, some people uh, walked on board the aircraft and they were they were vomiting, and and you know that's how much stress and anxiety that they were in. So offloading these passengers and putting them back into a compound didn't seem like the right answer. At the time, those guys were being sorted out by medics, and, and we had our force protection board, and, and they were helping out. And you know, they they also did absolute amazing job. You know, whether it be with the kids, the kids were going, "Wow, an amazing aircraft," and were kind of almost oblivious to the scenario. And then when the adults were coming on, this is you know, this is literally a plane to freedom, and and they're running away from an oppressive regime. So so many different emotions and, and the load masters the force protection you know the, the the medics on board were dealing with that but at the front I, I was literally only focused on fuel and being able to take off so I, um, I I'm there and I'm aware of some other regulation which our, our Hercs operate to um, more in the special forces environment but you know they're allowed to take off on 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 strips which are unlit uh, for certain different reasons, and uh, and so it's like I think we need to apply this regulation. Look, Kabul is a massively long runway. It's really wide. It's painted. 
do I think that I'm going to do I think that I'm going to have a runway excursion? Am I going to leave the runway? No, I'm on Cox. I can see the painted surface. You know, there's no risk there. It comes back down to that operational risk. It's like, uh, you know, the reason you want MBG lights and, uh, you know, the, the IR markers and stuff like that is so that you don't leave the runway surface. And uh, so anyway, uh, I had a chat with the other pilot and, and he completely agreed. And so we were going to go for this. We, we ended up taxiing out. There were two aircraft. There was an A400M and a, and a reach call sign to another USC-17 that were waiting at the threshold. And so I went on to the... Uh, so we were able to actually take off from the intersection. And uh, we went for it. So rolled onto the runway, um, 30 to 40 knots. Uh, we were kind of good to go. Uh, because we were doing an intersection takeoff and the performance allowed it, we, we were up at full power anyway. Because, you know, the only option was full power because the mountains and performance. Uh, it's still relatively warm, you know, when I say relatively, it's still August in Kabul, so it's hot, it's high, and even though it's right. at night, it was it was still about 34, 35 degrees, so, you know, you're using full power. Um, yeah, so we're cracking along down the runway, and about 85 knots, we, we look into our right one o'clock, uh, so I'm flying, the other guy's in the left-hand seat, and he is, um, he's the non, um, uh, non-operating pilot, or the pilot, pilot non-flying. And he, he goes, uh, right, three vehicles. They've got their headlights on and uh, and they're driving down the opposite taxiway. Uh, and he goes, yeah, uh, right one, uh, right three o'clock. Sorry, right, right one o'clock, three vehicles, uh, uh, no confliction. And I went, yeah, tally. Uh, we carry on. And about 95 knots, that's when they they turn right and uh, and come, um, come ahead of us. And we probably had about 1,000 feet uh, to... Uh, well, they were a thousand feet ahead of us, and immediately I said, "We haven't got enough space to stop." And and the guy to my left went, "Yeah, agreed." I went, "So I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep going. Uh, we'll we'll get to takeoff speed." And he went, "Agreed." So I carry on, uh, and you know that that conversation all all happened really quickly, but time kind of slows down. It's like your Matrix moment. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say, you know, from a pilot's perspective, to, you know, really hammer the point home for those listening that haven't been, it's like, all right, you, it's about 80 knots when you like see them and start talking about, it. I mean, you're talk, probably talking about three or four seconds and now you're probably at 105 knots, you know I mean? It's all, it's all ticking up. That's what I'm envisioning in my yeah, head at least. So, so, so that's it. You, you know, uh, you know, we see the vehicles at 85 knots, um, you know, at 95 knots, they, they turn, uh, they, they turn right across the runway. Uh, very clearly you can see a pickup truck, a bus and another pickup truck. And uh, I've already determined that I can't stop. And so uh, I'm now trying to work out what speed I can get to. So rotate speed is 125 knots. and uh, But 105 knots, it's really clear that if I don't do something now, we are going to hit those vehicles. And and so, you know, the, the flight data recorder shows that uh, at um, 108 knots, I start doing a relatively gent- uh, gentle stick pull. The, the normal stick pull for a C-17 uh, was somewhere between 15 and 24 pounds of force. When they went through the the analysis, uh, they they couldn't find my stick pull on there, but rotate, and it was an 11 pound stick pull, and, uh, and so they put all the gains down, so they went, okay, yeah, you were really gentle, but essentially 110 knots, um, uh, um, 110 knots we lifted off the ground, and, uh, and once we got enough height, I was as gentle as I possibly could be to make sure I had enough height to to, to miss the bus. Uh, so we we didn't do a normal rotate where you go three degrees per second to fifteen degrees nose up. No, it was enough height yeah. and don't stall. 
and uh, and you know just 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 missed the bus and 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 that was it and then we watched the um the vehicles go below us and and you know what i was flinching at the time i was going oh, we're gonna scrape something and uh and, and it was it was pretty uncomfortable and then and then it was clear that we'd, <laughs> yeah. we'd cleared them. And so I, you know, we were about kind of um, five, six degrees nose up at the time and 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 then just kind of carried on up to 15 degrees nose up and then carried on with the takeoff. The, um, the pilot, there, there, was no, there was no discussion about like, uh, should I turn right or turn left or do anything like that? But uh, it was just, you know, the only thing that's going to save us here is height. Uh, the uh, the loadmaster... Uh, die she was she was in the left-hand troop door and i and i said die how much did we miss those vehicles by and she went 10 feet if that uh, and and, and and she she was able to clearly see the the pickup truck the first pickup truck went under the number one engine uh the bus was under the number two engine and then underneath the undercarriage and then the um and then the guy who was in the right hand seat uh sorry the right hand troop door the other engineer um saw the uh the other pickup truck just go underneath the uh, the number four engine, so we were like directly above them. So you know that th- there were always questions. There'll always be questions about. So if you would have slammed on the brakes, actually, um, would you know? Would they have? You know, would you have um, stopped before they cross? Uh, you know, where was it? But the the amount of seconds and and the decision making at the time, I, I think we're talking about whether we hit the first vehicle or the last vehicle. Um, uh, the fact is, they couldn't right. see us because we had no lights on. Uh, and we were on Gox, so we could see them, but they couldn't see us. And the only time they would have known about it is when we would have collided with 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 them, pretty much. Right. Um, so so that was the situation. The um that kind of the funny the funny bit afterwards. So um um uh, Millie goes uh, says to air traffic, just to let you know, we've had a runway incursion. <laughs> it's just a, a slight one. Yeah, we we just had a runway incursion, and uh, and then the the guys uh. And then I, I went straight on the radio. I went, yeah, just to let you know, guys, a, a bus has just pulled out in front of us. Now, the, the TAC air traffic guys were in a tent literally adjacent to where everything happened. And so the guy from 82nd Airborne went, we know, guys, we didn't think you were going to make it. I was, We were praying for you. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I'd love to meet those guys. We we didn't uh, didn't manage to get in contact with them, but they... Um, they yeah they they saw the whole thing and uh, and so what happened then is uh, on the ground on the ground very quickly nothing happened and uh, as in all operations were stopped until i think those vehicles the two pickup trucks and the at the bus are, are, i'm fairly sure i know what they were doing uh, because i've spoken to the person who had tasked them and and but they had no comms with the tactical air traffic controller. They also didn't know where they were on the airfield because they hadn't had the airfield familiarization right. brief. So there were uh, there were other things right. that they could put in place. And uh, so that was all that was all done. Um, and then operations kind of resumed. I went back. We we, we climbed up and and it was only as we got through twenty thousand feet, i.e. out out of the threat zone, that all of a sudden we were able to go. Yeah. So that just happened, didn't it? It's like yeah, wow. And 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 everyone was going okay, yeah. So okay, that was all that was all pretty close. And I went yeah, and and I went into the mission computer, so you know, uh, flight management system. And I was going, how much space did I need to stop? And I was getting the airfield charts out and uh, and like drawing. I'm fairly sure I had this much space. And so what I did is is I put into the mission computer how much distance did I need to land so if i landed 
um, at that speed, uh, how much space did I need to stop? And it came out with 1,932. And of course, you can you can overperform, but it was like, well, I'm fairly sure I only had 1,000 feet. So I, I was fairly sure that I couldn't stop. But it was it was instinctive. It was really, you know, you're, you're going, did I make the right decision there? Because have I put everyone's lives in danger? And, and you're, you're questioning that. Right. And so I put this all into an air safety report. Uh, there was a bit of an embargo on that because we knew this was going to go, you know, everyone was going to go, yeah, holy Mary, mother of <laughs> the... Right. Uh, and <laughs> and so, so I, I reported that up into the operational chain of command and, and lots of things and let the other guys know uh, what happened, and, you know, and, and, and yeah, then it just became a thing and the story took hold and, and kind of the, the rest is history. Level up your listening with Bose Quiet Comfort Ultra Earbuds and Headphones with immersive sound and world class noise cancellation for a not so silent night. Visit Bose.com slash Spotify to shop sound that's more than a present. Introducing Royal Caribbean's newest ship, Icon of the Seas, the ultimate family vacation. The ultimate six slides, eight neighborhoods, zero compromise vacation. The ultimate never done that, can't wait to do it vacation. The ultimate chillin' by a different pool every day of the week vacation. This is the Icon of Vacations. Icon of the Seas, arriving in 2024. Book today. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Jeez, that's crazy. Well, I think most of our takeoff and landing that assumption in like the fighter world, it's like they give you two seconds to like recognize and then you know, throttle idle and we'll start applying the brakes, you know? So in that two seconds, obviously you're still accelerating. So what was a thousand feet is now 800 feet or 700 feet, like no chance, but I can just, I'm like envision this like lumbering C-17 probably touching the stick shaker or getting ready to touch the stick shaker. Just, just floating it out. Uh, not where you want to be in life, but obviously uh, that's where you were. So pretty. Yeah. Impressive. So, I mean, you know, from flying big airplanes as well, but you know, in every scenario that you do in the simulator, you can either stop or reject the aircraft or you can take off. What you don't have to do is is go, okay, I can't stop and I can't reach my takeoff speed. What am I gonna do? We we just don't train for that. And uh and um and I was asked I was asked by Prince William actually, so are they gonna make a new simulator scenario um for this? And I went, um uh, I went, sir, I, I hope not. I went, that would be a complete waste of resource. So all of the pilots going through this scenario, what I really want to do is protect the airfield and make sure that vehicles don't encroach that surface again or else it just be a waste of training. Right. Can you take off? Right. What we want you to do now is take off 15 knots slower because then then that would you know be negative training, I think. Oh, yeah. I'd rather open up a can of worms that you'll never be able to put, you know, you'll never be able to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Not not where you want to be uh, in, in life, I think. Um, Wow, that's spicy. You literally did the standard bus full of nuns on the runway. I don't know if you guys do that with all your emergency procedure sims, but like every you know emergency procedure sim you do, like to force a go around or force a abort, it's like you're just coming down final. You're like single engine, and then all of a sudden there's a bus full of nuns on the runway, and you got to go around. So you you literally did it in real yeah, life. It was, uh, you know, <laughs> but without the ability to go around, it's like okay, well, what am I gonna do? Yeah. No. I have no, I have no choice. Actually, I recorded an episode two days ago, which won't see the light of day for quite some time, but it was actually the aircraft commander from uh, the C-17, the first one where it was kind of overtaken, people hanging onto it and falling falling off. Yeah. And he was just describing 
Yeah, that time. Because I was asking about the decision to take off, you know, taxiing down, turning around. You don't know if the airfield's clear. But he's like, you know, couldn't talk to the Apaches, couldn't talk to the the MRAPs, all these players on the airfield. That's it. Could not talk, you know, and then it's still like, you know, it's going on throughout the entire operation with people driving across the runway. I, I want to know, I want to talk to the guys driving that because can you imagine how loud, like they were probably com- obviously completely unaware that you guys were rolling down the runway and their first inclination was probably a C-17 passing 10 feet over them in full Full throttle, you know, just be it'd be wild. Yeah, let's uh, let's just pause it there. My lovely wife has uh, just literally come in, so I just let her know that I'm on the podcast now. Hey, sweetheart. Uh, yeah, so my son's home from school. So I've had I've had two amazing children here uh, who've sat um, perfectly quiet throughout because I exercised them before with the dog, and now now my wife's home, and, <laughs> and my, my awesome. son's up, and uh, and will be, but just uh, but she knows I'm on the podcast, so that's cool. No, it's perfect. Yeah, yeah so, I love it. Yeah, I guess yeah, a little later in the day for you than it yeah, is for me. Yeah, yeah. So the um, so the funny, the funny thing. So, so, so there's another part to the story. So, so you then go right. Uh, we've just had this incident. Uh, we've done the air safety report, and uh, and but we have to go the next day, right? And uh, so yeah, you, keep so going. I, uh, so everyone was kind of aware of. Of what had happened, and and we'd fully debriefed it, and everyone was comfortable with the decision that I'd made as the aircraft um, uh, uh, captain, but also as the pilot flying, and uh, and you know the uh, the other guy, uh, I don't want to call him co-pilot because he was a qualified captain in his own right. Uh, so the the other pilot was, um, uh, we, we were all happy with the decision, and uh, and uh, but we crew rested, but we had to go the next day. Uh, because you know it's, it, we had lots of airplanes and lots of crews, and so I um, individually kind of messaged each person, and I spoke to Millie, and uh, and 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 he uh, we we went well. He went. I uh, on reflection, I'm not 100 percent sure I would have done the same thing as you last night, and but I also know that what you did was the right thing, and uh, and and. Because he was a captain as well, and I was the boss, I said, "Look, uh, so first first trip in, he was the captain, and and I was his co-pilot, and then we were flip flopping. So the next night in, on the fateful night, I was the captain, and he was the co-pilot, and then on this Thursday, uh, on this third day, it was time for him to be in charge. And he went, "Look, um, I'm actually, you know, it's like you've got like loads more hours, and uh, and I'm not sure, and I'd just be more comfortable if you you were just the aircraft commander." That's so right. I went, "That's fine." I went. But you're still flying it. He went, okay, I'm happy with that. So he was happy to go flying. <laughs> I spoke to Di, the loadmaster, and she, uh, I said, are you happy to go flying? She went, yeah, yeah, that's absolutely fine. We had another loadmaster on board. And, uh, and he said to me, okay, how are you going to make sure tonight that I don't die? And, and actually, that was quite an, an interesting question. I, I went, you know what? Um, Any time we're close to the runway, I'm going to make sure that all of my lights on and I look like a Christmas tree. Is like uh, I'm not going to take the risk. Uh, you know, I don't think we're going to get shot at. I don't think we get shot out of the sky. I don't think that is a valid risk. And that risk is, you know, fails. Uh, sorry, pales into insignificance compared to, um, you know, hitting a vehicle on the runway. I went. So we're going to look like a Christmas tree. He went. I'm happy. Happy to go flying. And then the, the ground engineers were were happy as well. So we went flying on the third night. But that was that was an interesting kind of leadership challenge. After an incident like that, how do you still go flying? And uh, and so we went for it, and uh, yeah, that was um, 
yeah, that was cool. And then that was our kind of last mission, really. It was, um, it was, it was cool. We did our three missions. That's wild. I mean, quite an impressive uh, story. I, I would not have wanted to be in that situation. So I'm, I'm, I'm obviously very glad it worked out the way it did, because I don't know if you roll the dice on that one. There's probably yeah. Now you met nine nine times out of ten, maybe it doesn't. End yeah, that you way. mentioned also about the um, uh, what was the what was the crew of the bus thinking? Uh, when we went back on that third mission, there was there was a bus that was tipped over on its side. Now. Um, we thought that yeah, we thought that actually there's a bus that's gone directly behind the jetty floats. Have we tipped over that bus? Because um, uh, and and someone else who was there in the daytime before us had got a load of pictures, and basically this bus had gone onto its side and had been bulldozed off the side of the runway. And it was like, um, did we do that? Because you know you think of some of the diehard films and and things like that, and you just. Right, <laughs> right. C seventeen at max power behind the jetty flux. Uh, it turned out that no, because I'd spoken to the person who was controlling the bus. The bus got to where it um, uh, went to. It was aware that it had missed the C seventeen. Uh, however, uh, the bus that had tipped over on its side just went around the corner too fast and tipped over, and uh, and that's why it got bulldozed off where it was supposed to be. So um, yeah, but we, for about two weeks, we were we were fairly sure that we tipped over a bus, but that wasn't the case. Yeah, I would think, again, talking about this podcast recorded the other day, one of the aircraft commanders, his decision matrix for not putting the flaps down, which I never thought about, was he said the C-17, when you put those flaps down, even at idle, now it's just deflecting all that thrust, even at idle, obviously, it's deflecting all that thrust, all that wind down at the ground. So he was thinking about the people running alongside the plane and didn't want to blast them. Because you see the videos on YouTube, I don't know what island it is in the Caribbean, right, where people are hanging onto the fence behind a 747 taking off, just getting sandblasted and blown, you know, 70 feet down to the beach that, you know, if you pass a bus by 10 feet in full grunt, I would think that one of those vehicles would tip over. That'd be a logical assumption to be making. Yeah. Like so, um, so, I, so I think it is a logical assumption. They, they definitely knew we flew uh, over them during the fact. <laughs> and, uh, but in this case it, it didn't, it didn't blow over. Um, yeah um uh, yeah uh, luck i guess yeah better lucky than good now that's a a joke there but um we we kind of went out of order i before we wrap up here i do just want to kind of get a snapshot of your career leading up to this because obviously c17 time a330 time uh tristar time can you kind of tell what what made you want to pursue a career in the air force and want to become a pilot in the first place yes uh when i was growing up uh i was i was relatively uh well i absolutely love maths or math for your audience uh and uh and so i was uh you know uh, maths and science and um you know and i was going to be one of three things an accountant a jedi or a pilot um, and uh, and <laughs> a pilot because i was i'm, I'm top gun era and, and and so absolutely loved the film that came out um yeah last year or the year before so you know so, you know, I'm that era. Uh, I realized relatively soon because I'm, I'm not too stupid that I couldn't be a Jedi um, and because I've got too much uh, of uh, the dark side in me. And uh, <laughs> the um, uh, and then accountant. Um, it was it was my mum who wanted me to be an accountant because she was historically bad at money, and uh, and and so it was like a, to sort her life out. And she went, accountants get paid lots of money. So so from a really early age, from kind of eight, nine, ten, uh, I wanted to be. I uh, wanted to be a pilot. I am a, I am a, 
you're always a um a construct of your childhood how um south on you so so you 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 know we only had three videos back then it's not like streaming of nowadays you know i think we had uh, you know we had grease we had uh dirty dancing we had top gun and i think we had police academy and i am I'm definitely a product <laughs> of all of those a lot of those things uh you know so anyway um, wanted to be a partner from early age uh, went through uh, you know i had a I come from a very working class uh, background, um, went to the worst school in, well, I thought what what was the worst school in my local area? It turned out uh, actually for the year that I passed my uh, exams at 16, that it was the worst school in uh, in England. And uh, um, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, for various different reasons that I don't need to elaborate now, but you know, and you know, by the time I got to eighteen, you know, I wanted to be a pilot. I'd applied for university, so you know, the equivalent of your college, and but I, I just wanted to go and get a job. And and the air force offered me, uh, a, you know, um, a pilot in the air force uh, at eighteen, and I joined at eighteen. So that would that was it, because you guys can't can't join at eighteen uh, and go straight in. So I went into training. Uh, that was in nineteen ninety nine, and absolutely loved it. And and uh, I went initially through the fast jet stream. That didn't work out uh, for for a number of reasons. I, I loved flying the Takano, uh, kind of like the, uh, the 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 PC9 equivalent, and uh, then I loved flying the Hawk T22 ish. And uh, but I didn't get to the end of the fast jet stream. And they said, "Oh, well, you know, it hasn't worked out for you. You know, do you want to go and fly helicopters or do you want to go fly multi engines?" And going back to helicopters, you know, you've spent a number of years in the flying training system already. And uh, and I and if you go helicopters, you have to go all the way back to the start. So I I, I elected for multi-engine. So I, I think I I got chopped from fast jet training in the February of two thousand and three. Uh, by the time it got to September two thousand and three, I'd gone through multi-engines and and I'd been selected to go to the TriStar. And uh, and and you know that was cool because the TriStar did air-to-air refueling as well as air transport. And and I was told air-to-air refueling was the was the sport of kings. And, and Queens, <laughs> and so I, I, I went there, and, and actually, I, I really enjoyed the air-to-air refueling side. And it was, um, like I say, everyone was trying to leave and join the airlines at the time. So, from a squadron ethos perspective, that it was, it was maybe not the best, but the aircraft was great, and the people were great, and the operational tons was great. I got the opportunity to go to the C seventeen, and after that, all of the things clicked for me as a, as a, as a military pilot, and, and you know, someone who. You know, wants to you know, do something valuable for the country because the squadron, the ethos, and the morale on ninety nine squadron was was just like unbelievable. And the airplane was great, and the people were great, and the tasking was great. So all of those things combined to to create this this magical combination, which for me absolutely solidified my reason to be the air force. And, and because I loved it there and uh, and did all right, you you know, you very quickly, um, you know. Success breeds success, so you you, you get promoted, um, and uh, and and because I've been promoted, they then offered me the opportunity to be one of the first pilots on our on our brand new tanker. So I had glass cockpit from C seventeen, and I had air to air refueling experience, uh, both towline and trail um, on on the TriStar, and so it was you know those things had combined. I'd already changed aircraft type once. So then you're not really scared of that. So they said, do you want to be a flight commander on C-17 or bringing a new, uh, bring in a new aircraft? And I went to that new aircraft and that was epic. And, and I got my air transport pilot's license and flew A330. And that was a, that was a great, great journey. But after that though, TriStar, C-17 and Voyager, three of the biggest aircraft that the Air Force has ever had, 
and and I've been doing ops for 10 years, but it's, it's kind of tactical. I needed to get away from big aeroplanes, RAF Bryson Alton, and ideally the Air Force. So I went into our joint environment, working with the Army and the Navy and the Marines, and you very quickly realized the things that combine you uh, are much stronger than the things that separate you. And uh, and I really enjoyed that, and and I got got a look at how our special forces operate, and, and that was cool. And and very quickly, because I enjoyed that job, you you continue to thrive, and you get uh, promoted again. Did staff college, went and did a, a really good um, staff job again, uh, supporting our um, you know non conventional forces, and that was great. And and uh, during that, I then got selected to be officer commanding ninety nine squadron, so unit command of the squadron that. I absolutely loved, you know, so I, I, I've had a pretty, uh, I've had a pretty, you know, blessed time going through and, and OC 99 was, was just, you know, the best job, the people, the squadron, the tasking, uh, you know, and the Afghan evacuation came up right at the end. Since then, I, I've still had a great time. So I, I finished that, went out to Shore Air Force Base for six months, uh, and Shore, Shore was, was great, South Carolina. Great people working with the USAF, uh, but working within a coalition as well. And that was six of the best months that I've ever had in the in the military. And then I've come back. From- well, you know, you you might be the first person I've heard describe Sumter, South Carolina, as that. <laughs> I mean, I spent six, about six years in Sumter. Uh, it's a great spot. It's a quaint little town. So I'm going back there. It is the great. Uh, you need to you need to go to um, South Carolina karting and uh, and have a look leadable there. Yeah. Um, we did a lot of karting, and uh, <laughs> and I think me and my buddy are still third and fourth on the leaderboard. Um, du- duly duly yeah. noted. Did you ever go to the dirt track? So this was Carney, as I mentioned, was our British exchange officer. He was all about this. So there's like the, there's a dirt track with like uh, little stock cars yeah. out there racing. I mean, it's in the middle of like nowhere, you know. But on Friday night, that's it's racing season. You back your pickup truck to the back of the you know, to the racetrack, and it's it's full on. Uh, full no, on so we didn't do experience. That. How, we, we did. Uh, we go went to some baseball games. Uh, the local baseball ge- uh, uh, yep. college team. Uh, we also went to uh, a few. Um, uh, NBA games uh, went up to Charlotte and, and and saw those and you know we okay. definitely took in the culture. We learned to play softball yeah. and uh, and we taught everybody cricket uh, and so there was a, a good sharing yeah. of cultures. So no, we had a, an, a, an amazing time and then straight after that, I I bounced back, uh, um, bounced back and and then and then went straight down to Tampa and then took the uh, took the kids to Disney and, and had an amazing time in Florida. So you know it was. It, that was a crescendo to a, to a brilliant kind of optal, but for what you want to call an optal. Uh, and then, uh, of course, uh, during my deployment, I found out that I was being awarded the Air Force Cross, uh, and then I found out that I was being promoted, and uh, and and you know, and and it carried on, and now I'm in the job I'm in right now. And again, it's multinational, it's joint, it's interesting, it's NATO focus. You know, clearly there is a war in Europe, and so it's relevant. So I'm I'm having a great time. That's my career. No, oh, Kev, I really appreciate you joining me. I hope you're willing to stay around for just a quick there I was story and share it for my Patreon supporters. Before we wrap up, any parting shots? If you found 15, 16 year old Kev walking down the street, is there any advice you would give him? Uh, 15. Uh, n- no regrets. I don't have any regrets now. Um, clearly, when you when you get chopped from fast jet training or you end up in in some of those low points, uh, you know you can't really change those. So kind of, you know, I um, 
you know, as a, you know, I've mentioned a number of times, you know, I, I know I've got the big man looking after me and, uh, and because, uh, because of that, it also means that you, you know, it doesn't allow pride to seep in. So just, uh, uh back yourself, don't get too big headed, um, and, uh, and make sure that you look after the team around you, because if you, you know, it's, it's all about the people It is all about the people. Absolutely. Kev, thanks for joining me on the podcast. I really enjoyed talking with you today and thanks for sharing your story. Thanks a lot.